following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. And I just want to thank, while you're, while you're turning there, I want to thank Jordan um, the songs that he picked this morning have really set the stage well for what we're going to be considering in this passage. This is Matthew's account of Jesus healing the Gadarene demoniacs. So please uh, follow along as I read. These are the words of God, starting in verse 828. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. God, we come to this passage this morning wanting to meditate on it and, and learn from it, as, as you intend for us to do, the truths about you, truths about ourselves, cause our hearts to lift up and worship at, uh, at this miracle that you've performed, healing these two demon-possessed men. Help us to see in it a picture of the gospel and to rejoice at what you have done for us in our lives. And we pray uh, that it would edify us to to the point that we would desire to um, continue to keep proclaiming you and, uh, and believing the gospel so that we, we live in light of your truth and we, we enjoy all of the fullness of life that you have called us to. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So what I'd like to do this morning is to help us understand this account of this historical event that Matthew has included for us in his gospel. As, uh, as Chris reminded us last week, the gospel accounts, they are historical, but they've also pulled together these, their records of these events in such a way as to make a point, to teach us things about God and about ourselves. So what is Matthew trying to, through the Holy Spirit, teach us here? And, and what does he want to draw our attention to? This morning, we're going to but by the end of this morning, we're going to have a good understanding of the answers to those questions. The healing of the demon-possessed men is a, I think it's a pretty well-known miracle that Jesus performed. It's also, perform, it's, it's also recorded in, in Mark 5 and Luke 8. So it's recorded in three places. These records aren't identical. They, each author includes certain details that other authors don't necessarily include. And this is not a problem. Like I said, they are trying to each make a point by teaching us about these events that, that were in the life of Jesus. And interestingly, Matthew's account is by far the shortest of the three accounts. It's just 
seven verses. In our, in our passage this morning, in the context of Matthew, comes in between two discourses. You've got the Sermon on the Mount, which ends in chapter 7, and then you also have the discourse where Jesus commissions the 12 disciples to go out and proclaim the gospel in Matthew 10. So that leaves two chapters in between. You've got Matthew 8 and Matthew 9. And I think this could be best described, these two chapters, as Matthew doing his best to come together with a greatest hits compilation of the miracles of Jesus. There's many well-known miracles that he just shows in brief vignettes throughout this, these two chapters. For example, you see the cleansing of the leper, the calming of the storm, the healing of the paralytic, the healing of two blind men, many others, and of course, our passage this morning, the healing of the two demon-possessed men. All these stories in chapters 8 and 9 are included with a theme that Matthew expects us to pick up on. And that, that common thread that is woven throughout all these stories, especially in Matthew 8 and 9, is that Jesus has come in great authority and power, and that this power is unlike anything ever seen in history. And also, to what end? Is he exercising this authority and power that no one has ever seen? He is demonstrating that he is indeed the Savior of the world, who has come to do his Father's will and to save a people for himself. So our brief passage this morning, seven verses, how does it play into, how does it play into this greater theme of Jesus' authority and power? To look at that, I want to consider three, three main characters that Matthew includes in his account. The demons, the townspeople, and Jesus. Before I get to, to do that, I'm just going to rehash this miracle a little bit. So we see that Jesus has come to the shoreline after he's just calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He and his disciples dock at the eastern shoreline in, in an area known as the Gadarenes. Jews and Gentiles both lived in this area. There were 10 towns close to, to, to each other in this area, so there's a lot of people, and there was likely uh, a Roman temple nearby where sacrifices were made to the Roman gods. And I, and I say that especially because some of you may come to this passage and you might think, oh, what about those poor pigs? And the truth is, they were probably, some of them, slated to be sacrifices for these Roman temples, or they're at least bacon for the Romans. You know, Jews don't eat that, right? <clears throat> so Jesus and his disciples have landed in the outskirts of this region, in a rural area that is some distance away from the more populated area of the towns. Large herds of pigs in this rural area were grazing in the hills in the distance. The herdsmen were keeping watch. There were quite a few tombs nearby. And in the midst of it, there's something sinister and infamous about this place. Matthew explains that no one could pass this way due to the fierceness of the demon-possessed men who violently roamed this part of the countryside. Likely, people in the region warned each other to not go near this place because these men were known to be dangerous and volatile and maybe even lethal. And yet, here Jesus is, leading his disciples from a frightening, surging storm on the water to a land where there are two formidable demon-possessed men who live among the tombs. 
This is by no means a mistake, though. As we know, it's true of all of reality. This scene is in the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth. He is teaching us, and he's orchestrating events to teach us about the world and who he is. So when Jesus and his disciples land, the two demon-possessed men come toward them. And like I said earlier, the demons are the first character that we're going to look at. So when we look at verse 29, we can begin to get a picture of what these demons are thinking about this particular situation. If you look at it, verse 29, they, they ask, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? And in verse 31, they beg Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. These words that the demons are saying teach us about their intentions. And I think not just these demons in particular, but the intentions of demonic forces in general. And so I want to focus on two of their intentions that are on display here. One is that they hate mankind. The other one is that they hate the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we see that demons hate mankind in many ways in this passage. For example, they cause the men they possess to live among the tombs. Well, their, their chosen residence is to make a point. They love death, and they love hanging out around death. The demons also, we see that they, they likely harmed travelers who passed through this area, which is why people avoided the area. So they were seeking to cause pain and affliction on people who were nearby. Mark and Luke interestingly record that the demon-possessed men were naked and that they cut themselves. So the demons, they were destructive to the bodies of these men that they possessed. And also we see that the, the demons, if they cannot harm mankind, they at least want to indirectly harm us, as, as seen in the destruction that they, that they do to the pigs. And so we see in this passage that demons are wicked, evil beings, and so far as they're able, they work to encourage the death and destruction of God's creation. But the true nature of their rebellion is made even more clear when we consider not their hatred of mankind, but their hatred of the one whose image we bear, Jesus Christ. They want him far away. Being near him seems to be torment enough for them. And if Jesus won't leave them, they at least want to be flung into the pigs so they can put more distance between him and them. But notice an irony also in this passage. They can't even enter the pigs without the permission of Jesus. They are completely subservient to the one they hate. They have no free reign, and they are locked into the boundaries that, that God sets for them. They know that the one who is sovereign over them is also their judge. And they know that their judgment day before him is set. So as they persist in their futile resistance of their judge, they see as a bonus any image bearers they can convince and deceive along the way not to worship Jesus. And this explains, at least in part, what's happening with the pigs. When Jesus casts them into the pigs, the pigs plunge themselves down the hillside and drown in the sea. At least in part, the demon's aim here, I think, is to distract whatever townspeople they could from noticing the amazing miracle before them. There are two men healed right in front of them. Two men who, for who knows how long, had wreaked havoc on this region, being possessed by demons, causing terror, and now they're healed. 
the demons are hoping that instead of the people paying attention to this, that they'll just focus on their loss of the pigs. And this brings us to our second set of characters for consideration in Matthew's account, the townspeople. So look at verse 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus to thank him for delivering the two men from the demonic powers. Well, that's not what it says, right? Though I think we can agree that would be the worshipful and right response, right? What does it say, though? What was their response? And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Rather than having hearts burst with gratitude and awe at the power of Jesus in restoring these two men to good health and clear minds, they begged Jesus to leave. They have the same response to Jesus, interestingly, as the demons. They want him far away, as far away as possible. Why? Well, remember I was just explaining how the demons, one of their goals is to seek to defame Jesus by convincing others not to worship him. So consider this, when the demons possessed the pigs and the pigs drowned, this was no small herd. Matthew doesn't include this detail, but Mark and Luke do. There was, the, the herd was, was 2,000 pigs. So consider for a moment how that would have been a huge impact to this region. Think agriculturally, the loss of all that bacon. What about the loss of revenue for the herdsmen? What about how there would have been quite the environmental impact? Think about the smell of 2,000 rotting pig carcasses floating in the water and, and how that would have had to be cleaned up somehow. Also, I mentioned that there was likely a, a Roman temple nearby. So some of these pigs were likely going to be sacrificed to the Roman gods, so this would have had an impact on their religious system as well in the region. All these concerns, I think, would have no doubt gone through the minds of the townspeople. And I think that the townspeople's reaction can be really boiled down to this. They loved their swine more than the Savior. When they reject Jesus and desire to have nothing to do with him, I do think that this is, in a way, the demons accomplishing their objective. But at the same time, we know that Jesus is sovereign over all things. And so the reaction of the townspeople, that's not a surprise for him. It doesn't catch him off guard. So what then is Jesus intending to accomplish in this miracle? And so this brings us then to our third and most important character to consider in this story. Jesus Christ. As we've seen already, Jesus is clearly sovereign over the demons. They need his permission to do anything, and in this case, he does give them permission. They didn't trick him, though. Jesus also knew what he was doing. While the demons may have had their evil purposes in entering the pigs, whether it be to harm the pigs, or to harm the gathering economy, or to convince people to, con to curse Jesus, Jesus also had his purposes. So let's consider how Matthew directs us to consider Jesus' purposes in, in two ways. Jesus is, is doing this miracle to demonstrate his sovereignty over the demons, to make a, a public scene of that truth, and also he's doing it to give us a public parable of the gospel. So how, we've considered this already, but let's look a little more detail. How does Jesus demonstrate his sovereignty over demonic forces? Well, he does so right out of the gate. Think about it. He begins this whole miracle by confronting them. 
he comes to them. The demons did not seek him out. He comes to their turf. Jesus is the opposite of a coward. He goes in strength right to the place that the Gadarene people knew to avoid. He leads his disciples right to the tombs where these infamous demon-possessed men roamed. And this is not happenstance. This is a divinely appointed encounter. Jesus knows that the demons are his unwilling subjects and his very presence terrifies them. He knows that they need his permission to carry out their plan, to, to carry out their plans. Jesus sets the lines for them of how far they can go and what they can do. And I think it's pretty cool to see that in Matthew's account of this miracle, if you look at verse 32, Jesus speaks just one word in the whole scene. Go. In a single word, he can command them to do anything. And we, and we even sang about that this morning, right? In a mighty fortress, one little word shall fell him. Jesus' power is infinite over the demons. It's also clear that Jesus is their judge. Their judgment day is coming. Their future judgment is actually pictured in this miracle itself in, as a foreshadowing in the drowning of the pigs. While the demons likely desire the drowning of the pigs to bring about the townspeople's cursing of Jesus, Jesus, of course, has other superior purposes. Consider for me, real quick, Revelation 20.10. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here we see that the devil, and by extension, the rest of his demons with him, will one day be plunged into the lake of fire while they will be tormented day and night forever. And so when Jesus allows the pigs to have the demons enter them, and the, the pigs go down the hillside, and the pigs drown in the water, this is a picture of, yes, of destruction in that moment in a lake of water, but also a foreshadowing of the lake of fire the eternal lake of fire where the demons will one day be judged. And so what all this means, Jesus' sovereignty over the demons, his judgment over them, is that in a Christian understanding of reality, we have to remember that there is no struggle between good and evil. That is just this ongoing thing that will just never come to an end. The Satan and his demons, they are, they are not some equal opposite power to God, and there's just this constant battle. We know that the end is sure and that, that the demons in every way will lose, that God will be victorious, that Jesus is king over the demons, and that God's power is infinite and they are no match for him. As I said a few minutes ago, in this miracle, we see that Jesus is demonstrating his sovereignty over the demons, but we also see him giving, in a public display of his authority and power, He's giving us a parable of the gospel. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about it like this. I realize that few of us, few people in the world in general, will be possessed by a demon at some point in their lives. But we do all start out on the same path as the demons. We are born hating God and we desire to rebel against him. We don't want to worship him. We don't want to obey his law. We see his law as burdensome and ridiculous. We want him, we want God as far from us as possible. We want to live our own way. And like the demon-possessed men, we are naked. 
We have nothing to offer God. But while we're in the midst of our sinful rebellion, just as Jesus confronts these demons, he comes and confronts us. He, he opens our eyes to our sinful nature and grants us hearts of repentance. He restores us with a right mind and a new heart, a heart that desires to follow him and, and know him and love him, serve him. Once we lived in opposition to God, now we live for him. And this humble response to the gospel that is pictured here in this miracle, one in which someone turns to Jesus in trust to him as savior and submission to him as king, is of course the opposite response of the townspeople. They ignore the amazing picture of God's redeeming grace on display in front of them. They instead find Jesus offensive, scary, and see him as doing more harm than good. Instead of viewing the drowning of the pigs as what it actually was, which is really not only a, a foreshadowing of the destruction that the demons will face, but the judgment that we all will face if we die apart from Christ. Instead of heeding those warnings, they cursed Jesus and begged him to depart their region. And to make this point a little bit further, I'm going to quote a guy I read who is writing about this passage. We have here a striking proof that not all who perceive the hand of God profit as they ought to do by yielding themselves to him in sincere godliness. Having seen the miracle, the Gadarenes were afraid because the majesty of God shone brightly in Christ. They sent him out of their territories. What could have been done worse than this? The townspeople choose, rather, to be deprived of the salvation which is offered to them than to endure any longer the presence of Christ. So there you have it. Jesus, in this miracle, is giving us a parable of the gospel, not only in demonstrating his power to restore and redeem us, but also how upon hearing this message, some people will respond with hardened hearts. And so, uh, to close our time this morning, I'd like for us to consider three exhortations. First, we need to think biblically about demonic activity today and how to oppose it. So how do we do that? Well, we can start by remembering that Jesus has absolute power and authority over demons. Jesus has triumphed over his demons and he has triumphed over Satan. And so if you are in Christ, you have nothing to fear. They will not prevail over you. Their judgment day is still future, but it's set and certain. And so, even though we have no fear of them because we know that God has defeated them and that he will defeat them permanently, we understand also that their effects are still evident in this world today. So how, how, do, we, how do we understand that? Well, for example, it's, it's clear in our passage that, that demons love death. And so when we see in our world people loving murderous things, like in our day, consider abortion or euthanasia, we know that these are also the priorities of the demons. And so we need to speak and work against such evil. Also from our passage this morning, it's clear that demons work to convince people to deny worship to God that he rightly deserves by deception and also sowing discontentment. The demons saw the men and the pigs the townspeople saw the men and the pigs and having hard hearts 
they interpreted events their own way. They ignored both the warning that was seen in the pigs and also the miracle seen in the healed men. And, and instead of marveling at this, they asked Jesus to leave. And lest we think highly of ourselves, this is also a picture of temptations that we all face. So the question for us, church, is how often are we too tempted to ignore God's warnings and his miracles? Regarding his warnings, think about the people. They saw these pigs. There's a warning of the coming destruction, the coming judgment that we will face apart from Christ. And instead of heeding that warning, the people ignored it. Well, either when we sometimes face hard realities in life that may be serving to us as warnings of God's, of God's judgment and, and his hatred for sin, or, or sometimes when we face, when we just read scripture, that is itself a warning about God's hatred for sin and an encouragement for us to flee sin and find our refuge in Christ, we, we have to heed those warnings and recognize that they are merciful warnings from God to us. In those moments, run to Jesus in faith and obedience. Also think about how these, these townspeople would have seen these two men who, who were terrorizers of their neighborhood for years and they're healed and they see them, they see this miraculous healing and they ignore it and they still doubt God's goodness. Well, how often do we find ourselves, for a variety of reasons, tempted to doubt God's goodness? When that happens, we can certainly look to a text like this to remember that God is powerful and he, and he is a miracle working and an amazing and good God. But we can also remember specifically the greatest miracle of all, which is, of course, the resurrection of Jesus and what that means and how, how we remember that. We have forgiveness of sin on account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we have fullness of life. So seeing God's warnings and remembering the miracle of the resurrection helps us to counter the deceptive work of demons in the world. And in general, then, how do we fight demonic efforts in our, in our world today? We work against their tactics. If, they, if we know that they use deception, then we proclaim truth. If we know that they sow discontentment, then we find our contentment in Christ and we encourage others to do the same. In short, we pursue godliness. This, of course, is not easy, but is absolutely a fight worth fighting. And it is what life looks like when you live to him, submitted to him as the king. And this fight is how the kingdom of God is built up in the hearts of men and women as we push back against the demonic forces that are seeking to hinder the glory of God in the world. Okay, second exhortation. This passage also helps us to sharpen our thoughts about what evangelism looks like and what fruitful evangelism is. I know for me, I often like to share the gospel with someone if I know that it's going to end in not necessarily them believing, but you know, at least a good conversation, maybe they ask some good questions, I'm able to ask some questions and we have a good conversation. If I'm afraid that bringing up spiritual things is just going to be met with an eye roll or somebody not interested at all or, um, or even somebody getting angry, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to do it. Uh, I really don't want to feel like a reject. You know, and I, and I know um, that's probably true for a lot of you. But this brings up a good question. What, what is fruitful evangelism? 
This passage here sheds some light on that question. Jesus models in this miracle that fruitful evangelism is not necessarily when people believe the gospel right then and there or even if they're interested in further discussion. Jesus, he allowed the demons to go into the pigs knowing that it would lead to the townspeople's offense. He knew that they would end up seeing him really only as a harsh judge and not as a good savior. We need to understand that Matthew is demonstrating that as we proclaim the gospel, we can expect that it will be met with hard hearts. Of course, some people may believe, but our job is not to only share it when we think it's going to go well. We need to proclaim the truth even when we recognize that people's hearts are hardened. And so even when this happens, our evangelism is still fruitful because evangelism, fruitfulness in evangelism is measured not by the number of people who believe or the number of good conversations we have, but really by the content of the message that we proclaim. And we must then be willing to proclaim the gospel even when we know it will be rejected and we may well be hated or asked to leave like Jesus was. We need to proclaim the truth in faith and all godliness and trust God for the results. And I know that's hard, but it's also part of the reason why God gives us the church and we have each other for support in this. Third exhortation. And this is the final one. This this passage reminds us to not stop believing the gospel. If you notice, um, there's a character that that Matthew doesn't really pay a lot of attention to in his brief account. Um, and, while, and while I'm explaining this, go ahead and flip the page to Matthew 9, 35 through 38. You may notice that there's a fourth character, and that, and that is the, the men who were healed, the, the men who were formerly demon-possessed. Matthew doesn't include their response, but Mark and Luke do, and it's, and it's interesting. Without going to these passages, I'll just tell you briefly what happens. The healed men respond not at all like the townspeople, but they respond in faith and desire to follow Jesus. They enter the towns at once to tell people what Jesus has done for them. And in a way, Mark is using, Mark and Luke are using their example to believe and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, just as the healed demoniacs did. And so even though Matthew chooses not to include this part of the story in his account, it is interesting what he includes at the end of this section. Remember how I said Matthew, the, our passage is in a section that's really made up of Matthew 8 and 9. So if you look at the very end of 9, right before Matthew transitions into recording the, the discourse where Jesus commissions the 12 disciples to go out, this is what he says. Verse 35, chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew's conclusion to all these miracles in chapters 8 and 9, including the one we looked at this morning, is, simpler, is simple and similar to the response that the healed demoniacs have, as we see in Mark and Luke. Believe the gospel, work hard to proclaim it, 
and pray that God will work in the midst of our efforts to keep saving people for himself. And we trust him for the results. And so, in light of this, in light of this passage, in light of this final exhortation to remember the gospel, keep believing and keep proclaiming it to ourselves, to others, to the world, we come to the Lord's table. And so, men, if you are going to be serving us the Lord's table this morning, please um, come up and have a seat. I'm just going to make a few more remarks. Um, And band, you can come up too. So if you're a believer in Jesus, my prayer is that this passage for you, considering how, especially how it's a parable of the gospel and and a picture of the awesome power of Jesus, my prayer is that it would lift up your heart in praise at God's goodness and power and his the way he has adopted us into his marvelous light. And I'd like to summarize all this by reading Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And note especially how this passage ties in well with what we've looked at this morning. Because Paul, he, he talks about how apart from Christ, we all followed willingly the prince of the power of the air, so, which is Satan himself. So let's look at, uh, at Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. If this passage is true of you, then the bread and the cup this morning are for you. And the, these, the bread and the cup are a reminder to us that, that Jesus instituted that we would keep believing and proclaiming the gospel until he returns. And so we're going to pass the elements in a moment and please hold on to both the bread and the cup until uh, we're done singing and then we'll eat together. But also, if you have not yet bowed your knee to Jesus, he's not your savior and Lord, please, as we're passing it, please just allow the bread and the cup to pass. This is a meal for Christians only. And yet, also consider this as a plea plea to believe the gospel today. Don't continue on the, the trajectory that the demons are on, one in which they oppose God, they hate his way, Do not oppose God. Do not love your own way. Turn to Jesus. See, find in him uh, your Savior, your Lord. Repent from your sin and submit to his word. Live your life as he intended us to live, which is in his fullness. And so, um, Caleb, would you, and, and men, you please stand, and Caleb, would you pray for us as we partake of the Lord's Supper?